0: Hello again, I'm Elena Armijo, and we have a wonderful show for you today. Can you have a partnership when you're a solopreneur? We'll look at that in our coaching tip for the week. And in our interview segment, we have Anne Baltz a vocal advocate, a musical improvisation, and how it can be used as a tool for freeing musicians' innate musical and dramatic capabilities. We hope you enjoy the episode today and remember, something powerful resides within you. I'm here to support you in seeing it and creating it. Can you have a partnership when you're a solopreneur? What an interesting question. So a solopreneur, right? Somebody who works by themselves on their own, who runs a business on their own. But does anyone really run their business on their own? I'm of the belief that running a business takes a massive amount of support and a massive team. So the first thing I would look at if you're a solopreneur is where are you keeping people out? Are there partnerships that you could develop that you've been resistant to because you think you're a one person show? Is there support that you could allow in that would make your job easier? And even if you're a solopreneur, one business on your own, what would be possible if you allowed more support than you've ever had? I think that most people who build incredible empires and leaders in the world have much more support than anybody could possibly imagine. For my own team, I look at what I have. I have a podcast team. I have a social media manager, I have a PR company, I have a PR agent, I have a CPA, I have a lawyer, and these are just people on the top of my head right now that I can list, but they are my team. And with my team, I feel like I can run an efficient business. So consider, if you don't have a team, you might want to get one, and what could it look like without costing you the whole bank? And where are people already offering support or offering to mentor you that you could take them up on that? Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. Today, I have the distinct honor and privilege of being with the incomparable Ann Ball. I love this woman so much. Um, And I remember when I met you, for the first time, it was at Opera Works. I came and I did Opera Works with Ann, which we'll talk about in a second whenever to tell you more about what that is. And I remember walking in a room and seeing her for the first time. And there was so much buildup to being there with you. And I remember that I just had this feeling come over me that uh, was about just awe. That's all how I can describe it because there was so much grace and courage and um, spirit and what I got to know after working with you during that time period was that you're a true healer, and that's what I love about you. Is that you, you actually heal souls. Um, so, welcome. Tell everybody a little bit about who you are outside of my my woo woo images oh.
1: of you. <laughs> very woo <woo-woo>, woo, very, California. <laughs> very um, California. Yeah. So I am. Uh, I grew up in New Mexico in an adobe house with pet burrows and on the, on the Mesa outside of Albuquerque. And so I have always felt a deep connection to the earth and to dirt because that's what adobe is. You grow up in a dirt home. And, and also I went to school with um, people of, of Hispanic backgrounds of the Navajo backgrounds, because we were, we abutted the reservation to a certain degree. And, And I think there was, I I just grew up learning that we're all the same, basically. So fast forward. So I've been a musician my whole life and starting at age four and played the piano. And even as a child, we created family movies in the desert. We got the kids from our, our neighborhoods to create these family movies with a you know eight millimeter camera, and I watch those now, and I see, oh, I was bossy then telling everybody what to do in the movie and so it's just interesting to trace back how where I am now and how that started early on mm-hmm. that you don't realize when you look back on your life you don't really realize that who you are is starts at the very beginning and um so I got into opera. I hated opera at the beginning, and then I got a grad school assistantship as an opera coach, and I thought, uh, how badly do I want to go to grad school? And I decided yes, and then just fell in love with opera. We did La Boheme in English, and all of a sudden music, all those notes on the page suddenly made sense to me. They represented emotions, they represented actions, they represented the story, and I just fell in love. And um, so I went to the San Francisco Opera and trained at the Merrill Opera Program and then started working in the business. And then in 87, I just started my own company to train opera singers. So there we are.
0: Yeah. And that's where we met. Tell us a little bit about Opera Works and what it was.
1: Yeah. So Opera Works, I had been music director of other programs. And so I felt in those other programs that there were parts to the training of singers that weren't being addressed. And so I just thought, oh, well, I can do that. And so I just started a program, Opera Works, to train singers, not just as singers and not just as actors, but as also to incorporate the human beings that they are so that that would infuse their music, that would infuse their performances with who they are in their unique being. And I felt that was the part that was really missing. And so we were the first to incorporate yoga into the program. We were the first, not the first, but we always had Alexander technique in the program. It was very physically based because if the body is locked up, then the voice is going to be locked up and the, the soul is going to be locked up. So to create all those physical activities in the program was a huge step in opening up a singer. A lot of tears when you unlock those physical barriers. Oh, yeah. A lot of tears happen. <laughs> but it's beautiful when people sing from that place of openness in their heart and their soul.
0: Well, and Anna, I, I can speak as somebody who was part of the community. There's such a following. Like the alumni group of Opera Works is expansive across the world. So when we're talking about you being the first, yes, you were the first. You were the, you were the one people came to to breathe life into something that we were taught a certain way. And actually, I want to know more about your theory behind how singers were taught back then. Um, cause I know you spoke a little bit before around, it was a very binary way of thinking. Can you say more about that?
1: Yeah, sure. So the way classical musicians, classical musicians are generally taught and, and continue to a certain degree today is that there is a right way for a piece to be done and a wrong way, or if it's not the right, then everything else is wrong. And That never made sense to me because in my mind, the composer, in most cases, the composer is dead and is not going to be around to tell us how a piece should go. So where am I in that picture? Where am I to create my interpretation of what this music says to me? And I thought, you know, I can't be the only person who feels this way. And I'll back up a second. When I was in grad school, my piano teacher, whom I adored, my piano teacher would, this is how my lesson would go. I, I would play and then I would, she would stop me to correct me. Okay, so let me correct. And then I would play and then she would correct me and play and correct. And after a, years of this, one day in a lesson, I just closed the lid to the piano and I said, am I doing nothing right Mm. And she was just so surprised that she said, well, of course you are. And I said, and how would I know? Because the only thing I'm hearing is what I'm doing wrong or what needs to be fixed. And so it was after that, that was like one of those just moments where, where the big bomb fell into my soul and just <laughs> said, this is important. So I can't be the only one who feels this way. And so we now when we are at opera works and the way I teach now is that the first word out of my mouth, if I have to stop someone, the first word out of my mouth is going to be an acknowledgement of something they just did that worked or, or an observation of what they just did that we've been working on and they tried it again. And now that worked because what that does is it keeps, it keeps them open and vulnerable Mm -hmm. because what happens What happens to singers, and I think musicians in general, is we have to open ourselves up and become vulnerable, particularly in front of an audience. But to make music, you have to open yourself to allow the music to come through. If every time you're stopped, you know it's going to be a negative comment, to protect ourselves, we tend to close the door. And then we open it to play or sing. And then we have to close it when the comment pretty soon, that's exhausting. So pretty soon <laughs> yeah, the door just stays closed. And because we don't trust anyone is really there to support us. And it can be devastating. And some people just have to drop out of the field because they, they don't know what they have to offer anymore. And so to me, that's a crime to see that happen to so many artists. Some people just muscle through and, and are actually able to take that and still move forward and make music and great for them. And then there are those who can't do that. They need a balance of positive and critical feedback. So that's what that's Gosh. about for me.
0: Well, I think that's why I call you a healer. Because literally, you speak to those people that were on the edge, you know, that were... were either getting ready to let go of this career or move forward into it. It's so funny because I just heard a lot of parallels to what's happening in the world right now. So, um, I want to jump there. Yeah. Right. Uh, Because if we think about it through the lens of like leadership or, uh, humanity, how people are being with each other right now, um, I hear so much of the same that's been trained, like the closing or the opening or whether you're safe or not. Mm -hmm. What do what do you think about that? (laughs) Did you just get the same hit? or?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's interesting you would say that because I hadn't really thought about it in those terms mm. that, I mean, I think every one of us, I think a basic need in every person is community, number one. And number two, to feel important. To mm. feel important to someone that we're contributing to the world in some way. Every person needs to feel that. And so when so many people are out of work, and that had been their their identity, um, or the kids who've lost their community, you know, to whom am I important now? It's just this kind of screen, and I don't really know what, I can't feel that person. So... I think it is I think it is a big part and I think that's also a big part of the split in our our country right now yeah. is one candidate speaks to one group of people who have not felt validated or or acknowledged or important and the other one is or another candidate may speak to another group of people who are feeling equally disenfranchised from, from whatever's happening. And so to recognize that and say, we need to, we need to look at basic human needs, you know, beyond food and water and shelter, but what, how can we feed the person in internally?
0: That leads us to, um, social justice and you being an advocate. It's, it's just such a great segue to becoming from opera works into what you're doing now. And what are what are you taking from Opera Works that you learned that you're now using
1: today and what you're creating? Yeah, that's a great question, as all of your questions are.
0: Um, I just make stuff up over here. I don't
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> we do that. Um, yeah, we do that. We just make it up. We did that I a mean, little bit in together the moment, in right? the past. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we have, we have. No, what we did at Opera Works was we started creating pieces that glued together disparate songs and arias from different operas and put them in a different storyline and, and glued it all together with improv dialogue. And we've been doing that. I've done what 30 of those. And it wasn't until maybe about 10 years ago, I wanted to merge my social conscience with my art artistic gifts, I guess, talents skill set. And and in 2015, so we started at Opera Works, we started creating shows that had a, a social issue. How would I say this? We started creating shows that brought awareness to a social issue, not to take a side, not to be dogmatic, because when when people get dogmatic about an issue, it shuts off the people who who just don't believe the way it's being presented. So it's all about um, just the awareness of an issue. So we did one on refugees when there were um, the Syrian refugee crisis. Mm -hmm. And we've done one on the negative effects of the internet uh, on relationships and that kind of thing. And, so in 2015, homelessness is a big issue for me. Homelessness and hunger in this country, the richest country in the world, and we have people without homes and we have people who are hungry. And so we've, we've started creating, now as an independent artist, after I left Opera Works, I've started creating these pastiche operas and in universities, as I had done at Cal State Northridge when I was teaching there, because I feel like students... It's so easy on social media just to zip through the the feed on Facebook or Instagram or any of those social media thing and not really get what the issue is not mm. really understand and so if i create a pastiche about homelessness and they have to research what it means to be this kind of a homeless person or what drove this person to go now they have had to research they have to play that person on character and on stage and that their knowledge of that issue is more in fondo, we call it. In, in Italian, it, it's just at the deepest level because yes. now they have lived in those shoes. Um, I just did one on immigration at Bowling Green University, and nice. those kids were amazing and, and really had to dig into who is, who is asking for asylum. And one, two people had to play the immigration officers So it's easy for people who believe that immigration, the immigration issue from a more progressive standpoint, it's easy to demonize in our minds the immigration officers. But to make an immigration officer in this show uh, a sympathetic character as well was, I thought, important so that the kids could, the kids, the students (laughs) could dig into these and see D- dig into the issue and see it from both sides.
0: Yeah, well, and what I love about what you just said is that it actually brings it to relevant time right now. So not only are they experiencing it at the same time in their own body, soul, connection, mind, but um, it it's spurring a conversation that is relevant all the time.
1: Right. One of the kids, one of the students who had to play a lawyer in the immigration um, where it was the interview room at the border is where it took place. And he was a lawyer to help people, but he was actually in the story. He was actually not only the lawyer, but a human trafficker who was scoping out the vulnerable ones so that he could alert his partners when they, when they moved through the border. And in the talk back afterwards, somebody asked about what the kids had learned in the, in, in this process, he said, I had no idea there was human trafficking and he was in college. And I thought, well, now you do (laughs) in a big way. So (laughs) 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 So, but I thought, and I created these at the university level because not only are they learning to look at the words of songs that they may have sung A hundred times in lessons and performances. Now they're having to look at these words in a completely different context that is relevant to their lives right now. They have to do the research. They have to play these characters. So it's a different form of education that is multi-dimensional in my mind. It's multi-dimensional. It's not learn this song and then we'll perform it. And do it the right way. (laughs) And do it the right way. (laughs) No, no. Put your hand here now. (laughs) Exactly. And move slightly this way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh. You're such a powerhouse. Um, This is all incredible. And uh, we will make sure that all the information to see all of this connect with you is online. I am very curious though, how did you get all this courage to be this powerhouse, to go out and create and say these things? What advice do you have for people? And how did you get this?
1: (laughs) You know, that's an interesting question. I grew up in a very conservative household that was based on right and wrong. (laughs) And I think it's just, as I said, making those home movies, I realized I'm bossy. And I rebelled. And I was also, I rebelled and just thought, ah, that doesn't make, if it doesn't make sense, then it's hard for me to do it. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? So I was also on a 13 month tour with Up with People. I toured with them for 13 months. And I remember sitting in the bus driving through Montana or someplace and watching the countryside go by. And I thought, now I can live my life for my parents. Or if they live to be 80, then I have taken my entire life and I've lived it on their terms. Mm. And I'm not willing to do that. So I'm just going to live my life my way. And there have been some rough times, <laughs> rough conversations, because I went against their wishes. I moved to New York when I was supposed to just move home. And, you know, and I love my family. But I just, there were things I wanted to do that I was driven. I've not always been courageous. That has come. Mm. But, um, and fear, of course, is a huge factor. But the question is, do I give in to that or do I just leap and see what happens? You know, that's the improvisatory nature. Yeah. Um, Let's just see what happens because if that doesn't work out, I'll just make a different choice. So now it's, you know, when you start to realize that people are reacting positively to the things that I'm doing or saying, not everyone, certainly not everyone. Um, And starting starting your own company, yeah, is also, you know, I just kind of started it. Oh, I know how to do this, and we just, you know, put out brochures, and there we are. You know, some people showed up, and I hired faculty, and that was kind of thing. But the the pushback I got from people in the traditional opera world was extreme. It was huge. Yes, yeah, it was huge. That this was just a bunch of crap, and this doesn't work because it didn't fit their model of what Opera education should be. Yeah. And so you just start to steel yourself against that because I knew in my heart I could see it was working the way we were working with people. I could see that. And people and the singers were saying, Oh, this is amazing. I just feel so authentic. And so I figure, Who am I doing this for? Am I doing this for the traditional opera business or am I doing this for the people in front of me who want to say something with their music? And that's the direction I chose. So you know, it got better and then we became more recognized and, um, yeah.
0: yeah and you got a lot, of, and then you were at the forefront.
1: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And it's like, how do we, and then I got nervous. It's like, I've <laughs> I lost to my to head. Edge being yeah. successful. <laughs> yeah. What's, what's wrong with people are criticizing so much. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's beautiful. I hear in that just, um, innate trust that what you are creating is exactly what you believe in.
1: I do. Yeah. I do. And there was a quote I saw when I toured with up with people, we toured Mexico for three months. Mm -hmm. And I remember going to a classroom in this little town in Mexico. And there was a sign in English on the door that said, I must do what I believe and believe in what I do. Life is too short for anything else. And this was my late 20s. And that has just kind of what is it that I believe in? You're I just guiding. better do that because I don't know what else to do.
0: Ah, That's so good. A guidepost, a little mantra.
1: Yeah, it is.
0: It is. Yeah. How are you taking care of yourself now? Because I have it that uh, we're in a new world. <laughs> Nobody knows what's going on every day. Yeah. Uh, you're still creating very big, impactful things, and you're using your voice in a big way. Out of all our speakers on the series, I, I think you're the most active in social justice daily and so, how do you stay sane? <laughs> yeah,
1: it's there. Yeah, there was a period about a month ago when it was just everything was too much, mm-hmm. um, and people were hurting. and And I'm also a Red Cross volunteer, and so okay. that's that's been a part of it. Is I have found that stepping outside of my world and my concerns about me and volunteering I now volunteer for two different organizations has been a tremendous help to me to get get out of my own worries my own anxieties because someone else is always hurting more they've they've lost their home in a home fire they need somebody to help them organize what they're trying to do which is very powerful um other than that I have plants, I have a million succulents because yes. they can't you, you can't kill them. <laughs> <laughs> they are very forgiving and <laughs> you know sometimes I'll just go out and water them.
0: Mm. and it's
1: very pe because I have a million of them that it takes a long time to water them. I love doing dishes because it gives me a way to organize something like they're ah. chaos. they're all dirty. Then I wash them. And move them over to the rack or in the or in the washer, and then they're clean. And I can stand back back and say, now I feel a sense of order. Ah,
0: I love that. That's such a it's such a coaching uh, like invitation or trick. If we want to say tip two is like, what is the one thing you can actually move forward or control if you need to control
1: something? Yeah, <laughs> and for exactly. me, that's dishes or cleaning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, clean yeah. straightening up, folding the the blanket on the couch or whatever.
0: Yeah.
1: Straightening the magazines, taking the paper, putting it by the front door after I actually read a paper paper. Um, putting it by the front door to recycle, you know, it's just finding those ways to create order because I I know that my brain, I hear one thing and my brain does this. Mm. With all the ideas that shoot off of that. And so I need a lot of quiet around me. If my office is a mess, if, if there's too much noise, I, I simply, I just get overstimulated is the technical term to get overstimulated. it's like, I'm overstimulated yoga. I also do yoga. Gosh, we are similar. We are
0: like peas in a pod. You and I, all of this is is like, yep, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I, what I love about it is, you know, this about yourself and there's no judgment Around it, you've removed the judgment of whatever it could be to just say like, hey, this is what I need to recalibrate.
1: Right. And the opposite side of that is I really need to be a slob
0: for Mm. a while
1: now. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to just not care. And so I tend to go high, high that way, like super fast. And then I'm going to be a slob. And it just regenerates me to be a slob. And then uh, until I get bored, like after I left Opera Works, that was after 32 years and I was burned, burned, burned out. And I took a two-week train trip. I got a little sleeper car and I just got on the train and just watched the country go by, no agenda. I just thought I just need to be alone. And I have a loving husband who allows me to do that. Support. (laughs) Yes. um, Yeah. So... Traveling, train trips are extremely restorative to me. Amtrak, Mm -hmm. that little cabin, you shut the door and it's just you and nature.
0: I love it. What do you want to disrupt in the world with what you're creating?
1: My dream is that I would have an, an effect, an impact on the educational system, the educational methods that um, would acknowledge the individual. And it's hard to do when there are 35, 40, or in universities, 150 in the room, 150 people in the room. But to have an effect to acknowledge that they have ideas, they come into that room with ideas. And it's not just simply a didactic way of teaching. Let me give you the information. You go home and practice or memorize it and come back and, and take the test. That is just shutting off, I would say, 75 in my mind. It's 75% of what each person can bring to the table. Whereas the Socratic method is asking questions and getting them to think critically and getting them to, to actually think and giving them voice and opportunity or permission to use their voice. So that would be one thing. I love the fact that so many singers now coming out of opera works, and then also people who've participated in these other prestige, are starting to realize that music can have a message beyond what someone a hundred years, two hundred years ago, originally wrote it for the poet or the or the composer. That we can use those same messages because human emotions stay the same mm-hmm. across. We are humans, we have the same emotions. So it doesn't matter if it was written in 1400 or it was written yesterday. Those emotions that that are being expressed artistically are are the constant. So if we can take a piece and put it in a more contemporary setting, then that is a creative act and not merely a recreative act for Mm -hmm. singers or musicians, you know take a piece of music there're black dots on the page the notes we recreate those correctly and then we're we're judged either that was successful or not but to re, to create is what i feel like i am doing and encouraging singers to create these new characters in these pastiche that didn't exist before they can't go to youtube and look them up they can't just research they have to fill in the blanks here's here's the outline of what your character is doing in this piece at this moment in this dialogue with this person here's the outline you need to fill in the blanks and what comes out of people is amazing it's just thrilling to watch people realize how much creativity they actually have naturally it's already there they don't need 25 years of acting coaching. I mean, those help to get you some craft. But really, there is so much inside of every single person that that I feel has been, is shutting, being shut down, that that would be the way to disrupt. And also to bring more awareness to the similarities between people, mm. talking social justice, that If I cut myself and I bleed my blood is the same color. It's the same color as someone whose skin color is different or who grew up in a different country who speaks a different language. The blood is the same. It's the same. So what's and we turn the lights off. We're all the same. So what you know, you know, so I would love for people not to focus on the differences, but rather the similarities or to celebrate the differences and learn from one another, which I, people fascinate me, just fascinate me no end.
0: Well, and I think I, I think that's why I thought of you for the series, Anne, because you've always been a disruptor. And my version of that for you is you've always been someone who invites partnership, not only creation and creativity, but what I just got from what you said was you're teaching people how to be in partnership. By allowing for people to bring stuff to the table, and I think of my own relationship. Like Aaron and I talk about this all the time. He's like, "What are you bringing to the table? What am I bringing to the table?" And it's like one hundred and one partnership stuff. But uh, the world doesn't know how to partner, and therefore celebrate and exude, you know, all the beautiful brilliance of humanity.
1: Yeah. Well, that's nice. Thank you for saying. You know, it's so interesting to have someone reflect back what they heard. Let me tell you what I think. I hear you saying, you know, kind of, (laughs) you know, in today's world when compromise has become a dirty word for some, yeah, it's like, oh, I'm so sorry, but as an accompanist, as a piano collaborator, it's all about compromise. I can't just say no. This piece goes like this, and the singer's going, yeah, but this piece goes like this. Well, then I'm going to do it my way anyway. I mean.
0: Well, then we don't, don't
1: have, have a piece.
0: Yeah. And then how many people we are looking like I marriages don't. like that <laughs> or, you know, exactly like that. Yeah. Just from yeah. basic connection. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And it's just, it's super clear what's possible from there for you, you know, with people that are connected and partnering the
1: world. On Facebook, you're supposed to write your mission, or that's one of the things you can put on Facebook. And I struggled and came up with these multi things. And finally, I just thought, you know what I want to do? I just want to do good. I can focus on that. Mm -hmm. I just want to do good. However, just those four words, I want to do good, five words, it just gives me the baseline for everything that I do, every word that comes out of my mouth. That was easy for me. To just think, rather than a whole list of things that I want to accomplish in life, that stuff will come. You know, stuff just shows up, and you go, "Oh, that sounds like fun. Let's try that." So, um, yeah, keeps me going.
0: I love that. Is that if you were carrying a sign into the future to have people follow you into twenty twenty one? Is that what you would have on your sign, or would it be something else?
1: Yeah, I would like everyone to wear that sign. Yeah, we <laughs> just do good. like we just have T shirts like like you know black lives matter and that kind
0: of thing i exactly. want you to do good exactly <laughs> i just want you that's to That's
1: it. Good. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. I mean isn't that what we go to church for to to learn isn't that what religion whatever religion yeah yeah you know.
0: Well and that's a great question. I mean for me it's always a spiritual question like what's next for the universe and what it what is the universe inspiring in people and i hear that that is what has been inspired in you is just do good. Mm -hmm. show up and and try yeah Yeah. that was something I think I got from you it was such a sense of freedom in opera works to show up and just and just have you say like just try something
1: maybe it works maybe it doesn't (laughs) exactly also starts to eat away at the wrong as being bad sometimes wrong leads us to a greater yes you know it's um as the supervisor at our last evacuation point that we worked last time we were trying to figure out how to do something and she says we're just taking the scenic route to yes <laughs> and I thought that is great <laughs> we're taking the scenic route to yes <laughs> and you know yeah 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 it's just perfect. trying to figure it out and you eventually get there but it wasn't a straight line it mm, so, never is oh. So, <laughs>
0: Well, Anne, thank you so much. Thanks for all you're doing. Thanks for your volunteer service. Thanks for being in the heart of the fires right now. Thanks for being on the front lines of social justice. Thank you for your creative heart and brain and soul. And thank you for being here. In a Manner of Speaking is an original podcast hosted by me, Elena Armijo, and produced by the following amazing team. Sam DeSanto in Creative Direction, Meg McCarley, Brand Designer in Social Media, Rye Taylor, Podcast Design Strategist and Producer, Rajan Noh, Business Writer, John Beethan, President Imagine Podcasting, and music by J. Aaron Boykin. Thank you so much for joining us.